Welcome to Understanding the Bible with Pastor Stephen. This is episode 34, Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Last time we'd covered 17 and 18 and explained how that is an interlude, the last one in the book of Revelation, which is a vision interpreted by the angel that followed the seven vile judgments, sometimes called the bowls of the wrath of God. And as an interlude, it just further explained things out of order. And it talked about the beast, uh, the symbology of uh, the woman and Babylon. Today, we're going to cover chapter 19 and 20. Remember, this goes back into the chronology of the end times and the judgments of God. So first of all, we need to understand that God's timeline is different than ours because he exists outside of time. Remember when he was asked his name by Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am like for all time, beginning and end, the eternal always was, always will be. I just am. That was his name that he used, right? He existed obviously before he created anything and he created the planets, right? If you look at Genesis 1 verse 14 through 19, it says, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Let them be signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And then he made the sun and the moon. And it says in the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So this was the fourth day of creation. And God created the planets for us to measure time by. And obviously we do. A day is measured by how long it takes the earth to rotate. A, a year is measured by how long it takes the earth to orbit the sun, you know, to create the four seasons, 365 days. A second is defined as a fraction of one 86,400th of the solar day, which is an astronomical unit of time based on the rotation of the earth and the motion around the solar system. Keep in mind the first atomic clock was calibrated against that definition of time, which we used up until the 1960s. The first uh, atomic clock was cesium and it was developed during the 1950s, the first prototype in 1955 in the UK. And of course, that tries to compensate for the decay of orbits of the planets, the leap year, the second law of thermodynamics, etc. All of these things point to a general degradation of nature and thus an end to all things. Our solar system, our entire freaking universe is winding down to an end of time. But God existed before all that. So our whole concept of time is wrapped up in the physical universe and God doesn't have to live in the physical universe because he made that universe. So since God exists outside of time and the physical space, then God can cause events to transpire at what we would perceive to be the same time. So think of it this way. If you draw a straight line, a timeline on a piece of paper, right? Visualize that from when you were in school. God is sitting above that. And he can reach down to anywhere in the timeline that he wants to because he does not exist in that timeline. And so that's what he did when he sent Jesus Christ. He reached down into our timeline and put himself in it. Think about that when we talk about these end time things. The seventh trumpet, the resurrection of those who died during the tribulation happens at the same time. The coming in the clouds, the defeat of the armies of Armageddon. The call to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where, where God sends his angels to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. The transfiguration of those believers that are still alive as we meet the Lord in the air for these things. 
and then the marriage supper of the lamb and the great white throne judgment. And when do all these things happen in God's timeline? Well, for us, we can only put them in a linear timeline and put little hash marks and say, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. But we have to understand that it's possible. And I don't know how that some of those things happen simultaneously. So let's look at this timeline of events and understand that some of my ideas of when these things happen may be wrong, or it may happen simultaneously with another, and we just don't understand it. So the chapters that we're doing today, 19 and 20, happen after the seventh trumpet is sounded and the last seventh vial happens in chapter 16. So you might want to grab a pen or pencil to write down these verses. I'm going to try and go through this fast and then we'll read the chapter. But there's a lot of verses that go into this that back up why I say the things that I do. Okay. First of all, the Antichrist gathers the armies of the earth to battle against God in Jerusalem in Revelation 16, 13 to 16. And God preps the battlefield earth, just like we do with planes dropping bombs before we send in ground troops. That is in Revelation 16, 17 to 21. And I'll read it to you. It says, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, and for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So, side note here, different theologians argue different things on the weight of a talent, depending on whether it was a Babylonian talent, an ancient Israel talent, or a Roman talent from the time of Christ. So a talent weighs anywhere from 66 to 129 pounds, depending on which time in history you are. So that's what we're talking about when it talks about great hail. If it lands on you, you're going to die. Now, this coincides with the seventh trumpet so when the, remember, when the seventh trumpet judgment sounds, the believers will meet the Lord in the air. That's in Revelation eleven fifteen to 19. Pay attention to verse 18. Let me read these to you. And the seventh angel sounded. This is from the word salpizo, which we talked about before, which means to trumpet or to sound a blast. And there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Now here's verse 18. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophet. Reward to the servants. We're talking about people that were beheaded, right, during the tribulation, and to the saints, and then that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. So here in verse 18, he says three different things are going to happen, and he's saying it in one verse as if it all happens at once. The nations are angry. They're judged by God. The dead come back to life. 
God rewards his servants and he destroys those who would destroy the earth, like the battle of Armageddon, maybe. Okay. So think about that. And the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple, the ark of his Testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. That's why I say the seventh trumpet, it has within it seven vials and that trumpet blast is at the very end when the seventh vial happens, which is the great hail we just talked about from chapter 16. Now, to back this up, here's the verses. Check these out. You might want to write these down. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, 1 Corinthians 15.51-53. Again, the same word salpizo is used in there that a trumpet will sound a blast, and we shall all be changed. It's not just the dead in Christ that will have the new bodies, but those who are alive at that moment will also receive a new glorified body. At the same time here, the seventh trumpet, we are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, 9. And I'll read that verse later. Now we get to witness at this time Jesus winning the battle of Armageddon. This is in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Then we usher him to Jerusalem as the conquering hero of the battle of Armageddon, where he sets up his kingdom and judges the earth. This is in Revelation 20, 1 through 6. Pay special attention to verse 4. I'll read that one here in a few minutes. Revelation 5.10 is the promise that he will set up his kingdom on earth. It comes from the prophecies in Ezekiel 37.25, 2 Samuel 7.13, Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which also includes the vision of Jesus coming on the clouds, which we're going to read here in a minute in Revelation, and also Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, and the book of Zechariah, all talking about the peace of this thousand-year reign. Then after we usher him to Jerusalem, there's going to be the 75 days of Daniel. So listen to this very carefully, because I know people don't really discuss this, but there's 75 extra days after the tribulation. Revelation 12, 5 and 6 says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. This is the thousand-year reign when Jesus rules with the rod of iron. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now a score is twenty. So that's 1,260 days, three and a half years of the second half of the tribulation. That's 1,260 days. If you divide that by the Jewish calendar, 360 days per year, it exactly equals 3.5 years. So that is where we get in prophecy in the book of Daniel, a time, times, and half a time. A time is reference to a period which most assume that that is referring to a year. So a time, one year, times, two more years, and half of a time is 0.5, right? So three and a half times. And then he gives the days in uh, Daniel 12, and I'll read that here in a second. So we know he's talking about 1,260 days, which is exactly 3.5 years. Daniel 12, 10 through 13. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. 
and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, that's midway through the tribulation, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Two hundred and ninety, not two hundred and three score. That is thirty more days than what he just described about the second half of the tribulation. Then look at verse 12, Daniel 12, 12. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. So now he's just tacked on an additional 45 days onto the 30. So we've got an extra 75 days. And then it says, but go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. So there's going to be a rest and you'll be able to stand if you make it till the end, all the way through that additional 75 days. Very clearly, as the Bible states, the seven-year tribulation ends with the Battle of Armageddon. I think that additional 75 days is the feast time for the animals to clean up from the war and destruction. Revelation 19, 17, and 18 says, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings. All the carrion birds are going to come out and eat the millions of dead humans lying on this great battlefield. Pretty gross, but it's reality, right? So the cleanup, the burial of the dead, the picking up of all the armament, the weapons, it could very easily take 75 days. The other idea of what may happen during that 75-day period is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Matthew 25, 1-13, Jesus likens himself to the bridegroom. Revelation 19, 6-10 calls us and invites us to a marriage supper, but it doesn't describe when or where it is or how long it's going to last. So traditional feasts, you know, could last eight to 30 days. I don't know. Could be there's this after the cleanup, there's this huge marriage supper of the lamb in Jerusalem where Jesus is going to reign. I'm not sure, but we know that it happens at some point in the end, right? And then Matthew 22, verse 1 through 14, is a parable of a marriage feast. And then Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, the church is compared to a bride. There's lots throughout the Bible about this marriage supper with the believers of Jesus Christ, meeting Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and having a great feast. So I think that could very well be one of those 30 or 45 days. Maybe it's a 45-day feast after 30 days of, of cleaning up and setting up his government. I mean, you got to think about it. The verses mentioned that we talked about in Revelations chapter 5, and then especially we're going to read here in Revelation 20 verse 4, that Jesus Christ sets up his government on earth with kings and priests and judges, primarily being those who were martyred for his name. I mean, I imagine, humanly speaking, that takes some time to put people in all those positions and start the judgments of the people that are left. You think about it, the worlds, the governments of the world brought this huge army to the Battle of Armageddon to, to fight God. God destroys them with the word. And then what does he do with all the governments that sent those armies? Pretty sure he's not going to let them keep governing. So maybe that setting up of the government takes up some of that 75 days. Just think things to think about. The next thing we have is the thousand-year reign of Christ, which is in Revelations 20, verse 1 through 6. Keep in mind, this is throughout the whole Bible. The promises to Israel talk about it, the Palestinian covenant in Genesis and Numbers. 
outline the exact borders that Israel is supposed to possess that they haven't yet. The Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 is the promise God made to David that his heirs would sit on the throne. Jesus is the heir of David, which is why you have the list of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew. Then you have the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, where it states the promise that Israel as a nation will return to God and worship their Messiah. Then in the book of Psalms 110, the book of Daniel chapter 7, where it clearly says that Jesus is going to sit down and make his enemies, his footstool, rule on the earth, judge the people, and shatter any enemies, human enemies that he has on earth because he has given dominion over all those people until they are permanently destroyed. Well, that's the last battle. So Satan will be loosed for a season. Then you have the final battle of Gog and Magog, and that's Revelation 20, 7 through 10. Then you have the end, which is Revelation 20, verse 10 through 15. That's the second resurrection, the great white throne judgment, hell cast into the lake of fire, which was prepared for Satan and his demons. And those who are not found written in the book of life are cast into it as well. Then the last two chapters of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, you have the new heaven and new earth. So I know I just scattered through that really fast, but listen to it again, pause it, go back, write down those verses and look them up. Because if I'm, if I were to read you all those verses, it's going to take me another 40 minutes to get through this. Okay. I just want to read Revelation chapter 19 and 20 because it ties all of those things together to give you what happens at the end. All right, here we go. Revelation 19. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. So that's the rejoicing in heaven. Then we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I heard as it were, verse 6, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. That's the believers in Jesus Christ. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant. And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So this is where he's calling those who are believers to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It doesn't say this is exactly where it happens. It could be the new Jerusalem where the throne of God is. I have no idea. It could be in heaven. It could, honestly. I just don't think it's going to be in heaven based on this chronological timeline of events that we have here. Then the next thing it says is the rider on the white horse. So if you look at what 
just happened here, we had the seventh trumpet. Then we have the call to the marriage supper of the lamb. Then we have the rider on the white horse come and defeat the Antichrist. So this is where I think the first resurrection clearly is, and you'll see that in the next chapter. The first resurrection happens after the very last judgment or simultaneous with it. And Jesus Christ comes at the same time and defeats the armies of the world. So here we go in Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So here you have white and clean again, like the bride of Christ, but they're sitting on white horses. They are now aligned with the armies of heaven. So this is why I think that we will be already resurrected here. Or if you're alive, when this happens, you will be given a transfigured body and we will either sit with the armies of heaven and watch Jesus do this, or we'll ride with him. I don't know how it's going to work. Verse 15, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken. Look at this. There's no fight there. It's just, he was taken. And with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So Jesus comes with a word out of his mouth, destroys millions of people, the armies of the Antichrist, and the fowls of the air clean up the dead bodies, eat the flesh. Now you have Revelation chapter 20. This is where it explains the two resurrections and the thousand year reign of Christ, which is about to happen here. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Remember, he just won the battle of Armageddon. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Read the book of Jude if you want to hear about the bottomless pit. And set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. Who? And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, then they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again 
That means these were dead. They were beheaded for not taking the mark of the beast, right? And they live now because the rest of them did not live until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. That is the key. The first resurrection of believers around the world is only of those who are beheaded for not taking the mark of the beast during the seven-year tribulation. Read it again if you don't understand that. Revelation 20, verse 1 through 5. It makes it very clear what the first resurrection is of believers. The rest, the second resurrection, did not get to live again until after the thousand years. So we have two resurrections or raptures, if you want to call it that. I'm trying to get away from that because it's clearly not the rapture as is taught in the church today. The first resurrection happens at the Battle of Armageddon because I believe it happens simultaneously with the word from God to destroy the armies so that we are in the air with God as he rides in on the clouds on the white horse and speaks a word to destroy the Antichrist. Now, whether it's a single word or a sentence, I don't know, but it says the, the word, the sword that proceeds out of his mouth and his name is the word of God kind of sounds like he destroys Satan by just saying something. But that's the first resurrection. And the second one is a thousand years later. Your idea in, in the American churches of a rapture is literally split into two parts separated by a thousand years. All right. Now, verse six, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So that indicates that those who participate in the second resurrection, the second death may have power over them, right? We'll get to that. And then we get to the final defeat of Satan. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So over the thousand year period, there's going to be people who do not believe in Jesus, that he's actually God. They'll just think he's this dictator that rules in Jerusalem, right? And they'll blame the Jews again or something like that. During this thousand years, or at the end of this thousand years, there's going to be a time period where Satan is free to roam the earth, get the armies of the world together, the unbelievers, to go back to fight God again, because maybe they don't have a clue what happened a thousand years ago at the Battle of Armageddon. Or they don't believe it really happened, just like idiots out there don't believe that the Holocaust happened. <laughs> Anyways, verse 9. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It doesn't even look like God cares enough to bring his, the armies of heaven with him. Like God doesn't even go out to meet them on the battlefield. He's just like, this, this is stupid. I'm done. And fire comes down from God out of heaven. Verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God. This is the second resurrection, guys. How do the dead stand before God if they aren't brought there, right? They're dead. And the books were opened, and here's how you know that Christians are there. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
and the dead, that's all believers and unbelievers alike, were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. The Bible in many places explains how believers will be judged for the works that they do. And we pray that our works come forth as gold and precious gems because we will get crowns for the good works that believers do in the name of Jesus Christ. All of our bad works will be burned up and we won't go to hell. We'll be saved through the fire. But we are still judged based on what we say, what we think, and what we do. There's clear evidence in Scripture for that. Everything will be laid bare for the whole world to see the things that we have thought and said. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. You are judged by your works. But, listen to this, verse 14 and 15, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death after the second resurrection that we just talked about. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If you are found written in the book of life, your works are not put on a balance. Or if they are put on a balance, the work of Jesus dying on the cross and your belief in him, your faith in him, is what saves you. It outweighs all your bad works. Faith is the only thing that will save you in the end. Next time, we'll finish the book of Revelation with all the good stuff that happens in heaven and the new heaven and the new earth. And until then, may God bless you all. Thank you for listening.